0: Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church, and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Man, I love this church. I really do. And I didn't say that for applause, even though I appreciate the applause. It makes me feel nice inside. Um, I genuinely love this church. Uh, for those who don't know, on my business card, it says Gospel Ninja. And so I get to travel around this blue rock that God made for a living, and I get to talk about Jesus um, all over the shop. And... Usually at the start of every single month, I'll stop and uh, with a few of my guys, I'll look at my schedule and look at the different things that I have to do, the places I have to go. Um, And I've got to be honest with you, every time I see victory uh, on the roster or the schedule for that month, I I smile broadly because uh, I know that I'm not only going to visit uh, the great state of South Australia and, uh, and hang out in beautiful, sunny Adelaide. Uh, The home of the the Crows, the Power, and uh, Farmers Union iced coffee. Um, But I'm going to most likely um, have the opportunity uh, to break bread and to spend time uh, with Pastors Tony and Kath Rainbow. And um, I just genuinely love them so much. Um, Their honesty and their integrity, uh, their kindness and their consistency... Um, I get to meet the best, and I can definitively tell you that you have a couple of the best, um, leading and guiding and steering and wrestling for this church. And uh, even though I'm a little bit heartbroken that they're not here this weekend, I feel so deeply honored that that Tony and Cath. Um, they gave me a call and said we 're going to be away on holiday, suffering for Jesus, uh, doing the work of the Lord in Bali um, and uh, in all seriousness, um, allowing our leaders come on to have rest is actually doing the work of the Lord. How many know we all operate and function better if we read the operation manual? And in the operation manual, God made it abundantly clear that we operate best when we have a Sabbath in our world, spaces and places of rest and recuperation. Come on. That's what Tony and Kath are doing and working on their tan. I just considered it such a privilege for them to say, hey, you know what? We want to have a member of the family coming in for the weekend and just hang out. Um, I love Tony and Kath's um, authenticity and their honesty. And the thing that probably uh, inspires me and challenges me the most is how a couple of genuinely genius leaders have pushed all their chips in on the belief that the grace of Jesus and the mercy of God And the kindness of the Spirit is going to be more than enough to win the lost, to restore the broken, to raise disciples, and to change the world. Call them crazy, they're banking on it. Call them wild, but they're banking on it. Call them edgy, but they're banking on it. That the grace of God is more than enough to not only capture our heart, but to also deliver us to our destiny. That the grace of God is not just this beautiful gate through which we walk to come into the kingdom, but is the fuel that literally drives us forward all the days of our life. That grace doesn't just cover us and clean us. It sanctifies us and shows us where we were destined to go. In amongst all the things I love about the rainbows and this church in amongst the style and the flair in amongst the the focus on fitness and heavy weight lifting in amongst the protein and coconut water that is always on ready supply every time I walk into this place the thing I love most is that this church has been and is right now banking on this beautiful reality that the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God is enough to not only just win us, but to win the world. Not only to restore us, but to reveal to us where to from here. Not Just to start the journey, but to empower us to complete the journey, both individually and corporately. I love that about pastors, Tony and Kath and their team and the people I know here at Victory Church, they're banking on the grace of God to be enough. So in the light of that reality, my simple word for you this morning is to dare you, no, double dog dare you, to protect that with all due vigour. Grace has brought us to this point, but grace will lead us home. And may that be our story forevermore. I challenge you, I dare you, Protect this beautiful reality that is so distinct about this community. That grace brings us here and grace will take us home. And the reason you need to be reminded of this consistently and continually in the journey is because when you study the history of humanity, especially the threads that pertain to the Christian church, one must draw the conclusion that we as a people of God have a propensity, a leaning, a tendency towards taking that which was meant to be a beautiful grace-based dynamic relationship with Jesus and turning it into a set and a suite of rules and laws and regulations spiralling to life-sapping and joy-destroying religiosity and legalism. We must be consistently and continually reminded that this just doesn't start the journey. This will carry us home because we as a people, we must make this observation, have a leaning towards taking that which was meant to be a freeing friendship with a loving, gracious God of this universe and turning it into something so not that. This propensity towards religiosity and legalism is such a part of our narrative as a church. And we must wrestle with this. We must, come on, war against this. We must, at consistent and continual points in our journey, hit the pause button and ask this question, has this slide occurred? Is this slide happening? And we must be bold enough and brave enough to declare afresh and anew again and again this grace of God, this mercy of God, this kindness of God not only brings us into the house, it carries us home. And anything outside of that will not bring the life, the fullness, the joy, the influence, or the impact we were destined to bring. But we will become yet another archaic institution floated by traditionalism, singing songs with no meaning hearing talks that will just go over our head, spouting loudly about the world that we will change, but seeing that world never change. But come on, if we can continually remind ourselves, come on, grace covers, grace brings us in, and grace takes us home, my friends. We might just change the world. But we do slide into religiosity. Come on, we do slide into ritualism. We do slide into a joy-killing legalism so easily as a people. Anyone who does any level of study about church or Christian history must come to that conclusion. It was the climate and the environment into which Jesus came 2,000 years ago. A people who were called by God, who were named by God, who were destined by God, but over a period of time became a people who were ruled by law and legalism, doing much for God, but ever far away from God. Study the words of Jesus and package in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will see Jesus consistently combating this slide into religiosity, ritualism, and legalism. You read the epistles, the Apostle Paul, as he writes letters to the early church, the very generation that saw Jesus with their own eyes and heard him with their own ears, already displaying this propensity that is within Christian history to slide towards religiosity and legalism. Away from the grace and the love and the kindness and the mercy of God, even in the book of Galatians, you'll see here the apostle Paul going, hey, what happened to you guys? In chapter five, he goes, you guys started on this race. You were running like kind of flat out. You were just killing it. You were doing amazing. And This grace of God, this gospel, this beautiful good news that captivated hearts like nothing else. You started in this journey, but who cut in on your race? Who messed with your groove? Who wrecked your vibe? He says in Galatians chapter five and verse one, don't you know that it's for freedom you've been set free? Or in other words, I went to all the trouble of coming to this earth, living this life, dying this death and rising up again, not just so that you could come to church and feel enslaved in another way. No, I went through all of that so that you could have freedom, real freedom. That was the purpose of it. But in saying that, Paul is insinuating that it's actually possible to be free for a season, but actually to slip back into a place and space of religious enslavement. If you study through church history over the last 2,000 years, come on, you'll see time and time again this continual slide and a correction, a slide and a correction, a slide and a correction. And I really feel in my spirit that as victory is now coming into A season where they really find their voice and start making strides forward. Come on, we must come back to a place. Whether or not if you've been here for a long time or you're new to this journey, come on, to remember that is what this church's distinctive is. This is our badge of honour. That we do not rest or rely on the ability to command and control people using a suite of rules and regulations, but we trust wholly and solely in the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God to not just win a follower, but to make a disciple, not only to bring us into the house, but to carry us home. And we refuse to slide into that stale and stoic place that so many slide into. But we will maintain and we will expound upon this beautiful reality that the hardest heart can be softened when it comes into contact with the love of God and His heart that beats for us. That the brokenness in our life is dealt with and it's healed and it's mended when we experience the soothing balm that is relationship with the Holy Spirit. That sin is identified and sin is dealt with in a complete and lasting way. As his kindness leads us to repentance. Grace has brought us to this point, And grace will carry us home. But I fear. That as this story that we are a part of. Consistently shows that we slide into these places and spaces. Of religiosity. That. Maybe even some here this morning when doing a stock take, come on, of their own journey and their own heart can recognize elements of that. I fear that unless we unpackage this, that this can not only be fostered, but it can fester and it can actually damage what God is trying to do. I see it in my own life. And so what I want to do here this morning is to unpackage a really simple story in the Gospels that I believe Jesus unpackaged for this very reason, to not only identify what the church of Jesus was always meant to resemble, but how to help us, come on, as we so easily slide into these spaces and places of just doing things this week because we did it last week. These places and spaces where we feel compelled and, and, and implored and pressured into being something to win the love of God. Jesus tells a suite of stories, especially these stories. To not only consistently remind us of the kind of church we were meant to resemble, but come on, how to break out of the prison of religion and legalism, if and when. Come on, we find ourselves entrapped again. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me to my favorite passage in all of Holy Writ. It's found in the book of Luke chapter 15. Come on, everyone say Luke. Say Luke like an Australian Luke. Luke like an American Luke. Say Luke like a Chinaman. Look, awesome. I taught you languages. I do it every single time I'm here. Luke chapter 15. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why we do this to ourselves? Seriously. Have you ever wondered why? We take something that was meant to be so beautiful and simple. Just just like unadulterated and, you know, brutally blatant that just, just God loves you. And as you understand that, our lives are transformed. Have you ever wondered why we take this beautiful truth and this reality and we turn it into something so out of shape, out of order and dysfunctional? Have you ever wondered why we do that? Have you ever wondered why we actually exchange relationship with Jesus by grace through faith and turn it into a religion that has us doing A, B, and C so that we can find ourselves in the midst of a God who approves of us? Have you ever wondered why we do that? I was just thinking this morning, I think we do it partly because it's easier. I think religion, come on, is easier than relationship. If we can just work out a bunch of things that we have to do and like some boxes we have to check off every single week so that we feel at ease in ourselves and with God, come on, that's a lot easier than this grace-bath and faith-fueled relation. I think it's just a little bit easier. I think we have propensities towards it as well because of something I called Chinese whisper syndrome. Or in other words, when you kind of like continue to share like a message from one person to the other to the other, something gets added to it every single time. I find the term Chinese whisper's a little bit racist, but you come on you know what i 'm saying here. If I whisper something down here and you 've got to pass it along the line, come on by the time it gets down there it 's got all this other stuff added to it. I think Chinese whisper syndrome plays a part in it. I think it 's also intuitive. Uh, Because we think to ourselves, well, God is perfect and I am not. God is great and I am so small. I must have to do something with my life to be made right with him and to be approved by him and to be loved by him. Because everything else in my world tells me that the love that will be displayed in my direction is always in response to my loveliness. It can't be true that a God would just look at me and love me, not because I'm lovely, but because that is who He is. I think it's actually really counterintuitive to embrace and to accept, come on, and to maintain this understanding that we're here by the grace of God, and this grace of God is going to carry us home. And so we find ourselves sliding into this. And because we slide into this, it ruins our joy. It takes away our peace. We always feel kind of weird and awkward around God. When we're doing good, we feel like the hills are alive with the sound of music. But the moment we stumble, the moment we fall, the moment we fail, we get transported to a million miles away. where We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Our journey with Jesus is always marked by up and down, up and down, but more down than up. And then Jesus responds. He not only tries to clarify what this church was always meant to resemble, but he gives us the keys of, come on, breaking out of this prison of religiosity and legalism. You see it in Luke chapter 15. The Bible says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws, those who were wound up and bound up in religiosity, they muttered to one another, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Stop right there. Can you see this picture? Jesus is doing what he does best. Jesus is doing something that he did consistently through the gospel accounts. Jesus is hanging out at a party and he's having a grand old time. If you're here this morning and you think that Jesus doesn't know how to have fun, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is the master of fun because Jesus doesn't just bring life. He is life. Wherever Jesus rolls, the party begins. So the Bible says here, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors, the weird and the not so wonderful, the last, the lost, the least, the broken, the busted, the down, the disgusted, those who are hanging around, the parishioners, of society, the dregs found within that community, Jesus sought them out. And they're hanging out and there's a party going on. The food is being fried. The drinks are flowing, non-alcoholic drinks because Jesus was a good Christian boy. And and so maybe not. And, And they're having a great time. And into this picture, into this scenario, we have this other group introduced those who were wrapped up in legalism, those who were bound up by religiosity, those who refused to push their chips in on the grace of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God to bring them home. They pushed all of their chips on their ability to struggle, their ability to strive, their ability to sacrifice, their ability to keep the law. They had pushed all their chips in on that. And here's this really sad picture, and it's easily overlooked. The Bible says Jesus is hanging out at a party with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And outside of this party come the religious, the legalists. And they began to mutter to one another. This Jesus guy, this radical rabbi, this teacher flavor of the month, Eats with these guys and drinks with these guys and teaches these guys. Who does he think he is? Can you see what's happening here? Those who understood it's not their goodness, but God's goodness. Not their ability to clean themselves up, but the Spirit of God's ability to clean themselves up. They found themselves not only hearing from Jesus, but eating with Jesus and drinking with Jesus. But those who are wrapped up in legalism, come on, didn't get to go into the party, meaning it wasn't any fun. They didn't get to hear the teaching, means they didn't get to grow closer to the Master. They didn't get to drink with Jesus. That means they didn't partake in His mission or His plan. Can you see what legalism does to the human soul? And so Jesus finds himself in this fascinating scenario. There's a group of people engaged in his master plan. Just a grand old restored party where you are taught and where you are fed and where we drink together, where we are bound together by forever communion and legalism and religiosity. Come on, holds that human heart outside of that. And so Jesus does something fascinating he calls everyone together and he begins to teach him and the teaching serves two purposes number one to establish what this church deal was always meant to look like as comfortable as it is as uncomfortable as it is and to also help people who are outside of the party because of religiosity and legalism to come in so he sits everyone down and he tells these stories he goes hey guys suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them Doesn't he leave the 99 in an open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors over and says, rejoice with me. I've lost my lo- I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God. More, rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country like Bali. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living and getting really bad braids and bintang singlets. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who rented out surfboards to Australians who don't surf very regularly, but they feel like they can do it because they're in Bali for some reason, and it's their God-given right to be surfy kinds of individuals. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods and maybe the nasi lamak that the, the, the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Hey, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now everyone pay attention to this part. Often when this, Text is preached. We don't read the last few verses, but the last few verses give us a heads up into the other party that Jesus was speaking specifically to when he first preached this message. Meanwhile, the older son in the field, when he came near the house, heard the music and the dancing, he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you gave me, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes and bintang t shirts, comes home, you fatten the, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, You've always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. My heart's hope and my heart's prayer is simple. To remind you, Victory Church, of what makes you especially beautiful. It's not the cafe that you run, even though it's probably the nicest cafe going around. It's not the music or the worship band that you have, even though they are world class. It's not Tony and Kath Rainbow, even though they are two of the most aesthetically pleasing pastors going around. What has made this church And what will continue, come on, to make this church so differently beautiful here in the city of Adelaide is that this is a church that has pushed all of its chips, has banked everything on the fact that the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God and the kindness of God is not only enough to win the heart, but to bring us home. We must acknowledge that even though This concept is incredibly attractive at the beginning. We as a people have a propensity. It's not just you. It's not just me. Come on, it's all of our story to take that which was beautiful and unadulterated, come on, and turn it into just a suite and a set of rules and regulations, rituals and legalistic commands. And we must war against this slide, come on, and always remember That the grace of God brings us into the house and it will carry us home. Relationship, come on, will bring life. Relationship will bring joy. Relationship by grace and through faith, come on, will let us live the life we were destined to live and make the change we were destined to make. Religion will rob you of intimacy with Jesus. Religion will rob you of your joy. Religion will always cause a sense of dissatisfaction in your heart and insecurity before the King. Come on, we need to push against that and always make sure that our chips are on and we are banking heavily on the grace of God and the mercy of God. And so Jesus draws this picture of what this church was always meant to look like. And if and when we find ourselves locked again in the cell of legalism, how to get out. I'm just going to make three really quick points and then we're done. All right. Uh, if you're writing down notes, you can pull out your notebooks and your pens. Uh, you can scribble stuff down. My One of my theological mentors always says that a, a blunt pencil is more effective than a sharp mind in remembering what God speaks to us about. If you're an iPhone or an iPod or an iPad, you can pull that out and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for Steve Jobs as you do so because that's a wonderful piece of technology that you have there. If you have have like an Android or a Blackberry device or a Samsung-y kind of thing, you can put that away. I have nothing for you from this point on. Come on. All I'm trying to do is bring a reminder, amen, come on, to all of our hearts and maybe to provide a few keys so that we can, come on, crack the lock that holds us into this life-killing cycle of religiosity through these stories because these stories were spoken directly to this situation. The first thing that protects our hearts from legalism and breaks us out of the prisons of religiosity is to remember our inherent worth to God. Come on, our inherent worth to God. The primary, it's clear as a phone ringing in a quiet room. When you study the scriptures and you survey the gospel, Jesus tries to tear down The case for religiosity by elevating this concept, your inherent worth to God because the fundamental principle that drives religiosity, insecurity before God because of our inability to keep the law, what drives that is this erroneous or wrong thinking that you are fundamentally worthless And through your action, through your activity, through your struggling, through your striving, through your sacrifice, you increase your value to the point where you are worth something to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. No matter who you are, come on, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter where you're stuck, no matter the rap sheet you have, I want to let you know you are of inherent worth to God. Because he's making that point here in these stories. He's saying, sheep are of inherent worth to a shepherd. A precious coin or a piece of jewelry is of inherent worth to a lady. A child is of inherent worth to a parent. And I want you to see the way Jesus tells these stories because he's not only trying to prove the point, he's trying to emphasize and underline this point as he tells these stories of objects of inherent worth in ascending value. One of 100, no, one of 10, no, no, one of two. He's trying to let you know, irrespective of how you find yourself here in this moment, no matter how much of a cleanup you need, irrespective of how stained your hands are or how marked your soul is. We are all of inherent worth to God. For you bear the image of God. For you have an eternal soul that was created to spend forever with God. You are of, come on, inherent worth to God. You can take a $50 note and squash it. It's still worth 50 bucks. You can rub sauce on it. It's still worth 50 bucks. You can drag it through the mud. It's still worth 50 bucks. And you gotta understand that it's not your ability to clean yourself up or to make yourself worthy. You are right now of inherent worth to God. It is not your loveliness that wins his attention. It's the fact that he's the pure embodiment of love that forces him to pay you absolute undivided attention. He can't help himself. You are off. We are off. Irrespective of what we do or we do not do. Inherent worth to God. Your best can't win His love, and your worst can't lose it. You're of inherent worth to God. He loves it when we pray. He loves it when we worship. He loves it when we tithe. He loves it when we give. He loves it when we worship Him, especially when we sing in tune. He loves the sermons that we write and the conferences that we run, the buildings that we build, the programs that we put on. He loves these things, but He always wants these things to come from a revelation. You are loved and you are worth the world to Him. Before you step foot, come on, into one of these things. Your inherent worth to God. The second thing Jesus does here is he clarifies the gospel. He clarifies the gospel. If we don't consistently clarify the gospel and remind ourselves of the good news. Come on, good news is going to become old news really, really fast. And that old news is going to become old facts. Those old facts are going to become theological presuppositions that don't take our breath away anymore. But here, he clarifies the gospel, the very good news. And the good news is simple. Christianity is not built on the premise that we have to, come on, pursue God. Christianity has been, still is, and forever will be built upon the premise that there is a beautiful and loving God, come on, who pursues us. Because that's what he's saying here. That sheep couldn't find its own way home. So who had to do the searching? The shepherd. That coin, by default, lacks the ability to return to its rightful place. So who does the lighting of the lamp? Who does the sweeping of the floor? Who does the turning upside of the bed? Come on, the woman. So it's the searching of heaven. It's the pursuit of God. That is the fundamental principle upon which all of this is built. Even that boy who came back from Bali with sunburn and a bad braid and a bintang t-shirt all torn up. Even though he took the first step to come home, he wasn't allowed back into the house. It was the father, come on, who had to come out and invite him back in. Come on, it was the father who had to restore him. It was the father who had to put a cloak over his shoulders and a ring on his finger and shoes back on his feet. Come on, who does the work? God does the work. So often I meet people in this Christian journey who have their breaths taken away and their hearts won by the idea of grace, amazing. But once they come into the kingdom, they doubt that that grace is actually that amazing. We come in by faith and through grace, but we think that which will bring us home is our effort and our labor. Now, do not get me wrong. I believe in labor and I believe in effort, for grace was never against effort, just against earning. But if we, come on, make an effort, because we think somehow God's love for us, come on, is based upon that effort, come on. If we engage in a work, hoping that somehow in the work we'll pay off some kind of debt, we're just sliding into religiosity and legalism. He's trying to let us know here. Hey, back in the day... You didn't have what it took to get to him. Come on. And still to this day, it's a preposterous proposition to think that through your effort, through your energy, through your endeavors, you can somehow perfect yourself to come face to face with God. The gospel is not your pursuit of him. Amen, come on. The gospel is his pursuit of you. The gospel isn't our work that gets to him. The gospel is his work, his hustle, his effort, his bloodshed that brings him to us. And the third and the last thing he does as the keyboard ninja slips up here like a minstrel to start playing a minor key and chord to make us all feel very reflective and responsive. The third thing he does here is he reminds us of what God's ultimate goal is. Listen to this not slaves recruited, but sons and daughters returned. Not slaves. And servants recruited. The end game, come on, is sons and daughters returned. He makes it clear. So the sheep comes home. What does he do? He throws the biggest party. Can you imagine that? Party for a sheep. I've mentioned this before. Can you imagine someone knocking on your door at nine o'clock at night? Seriously, come over to my house. Why am I coming to my house? We're having a party. What do you mean we're having a party? My sheep was lost and now it's found again. What? We're having a sheep party. We're eating sheep for a party? Not eating sheep. Having a sheep party. So you come over to your friend's house and then there's a sheep sitting in the corner of the room with like a party hat on his head and a blower and a mouth looking all kind of confused. And it's a weird picture, but Jesus draws the picture. And he goes on to say, come on, I tell you the truth. There is greater celebration in heaven over one lost person who comes home than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to return. What's he saying here? The biggest party is reserved for your return. The goal isn't trying to raise up servants and slaves to perform activities and to fulfill roster spots. The purpose of this whole deal isn't just to amass numbers so that we can brag of the volume of people that we have convinced to gather in a house at any given time. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose isn't Slaves and servants recruited. Its sons and daughters returned. He says, when this woman finds the coin, she calls her friends and her neighbours and says, come and celebrate with me. Come on, come over to my house. We're going to have like a selfie party. We're going to be like, the... me, hashtag white girl problems. I found my sweat.' And so she's like going crazy. And I just find that when ladies go crazy and get really, really excited, they, they turn their cameras on and take pictures of themselves with whatever's happening at the moment. And so there's this crazy party going on at this girl's house. Why? Because it's the end game. Notice that in the story about this son who returned, the Bible says that they killed the fattened calf. Or in other words, there was a cow kept on the property for a very special occasion. My wife and I, we have a goal in mind for the end of this year and we're very close to meeting it. And my wife has a bottle of champagne. Um, I, I don't drink because I don't hold my alcohol very well, but my wife drinks like a fish. And so like, we, have this, like, we have this like, and you know, when we're gonna pop the bottle when it's gonna happen? It, it, it's when we, because why? That's held and reserved for this celebration. So what Jesus is saying is this, he doesn't hold the greatest celebration for when we show ourselves perfected in our own strength. He doesn't hold this celebration for when we can like keep it clean for like six months in a row and we just feel amazing because, you know what, I mean, no, no. He holds this celebration not when a servant or a slave is recruited, but when a son, come on, and a daughter is returned. It's beautiful. Or in other words, He loves it when we give and we sow and we serve and we do what needs to be done here in the kingdom of God to see it forcefully advance. He loves it. But that which is most important to Him is you understanding you're not a slave and you're not a servant. Come on, no. You're a son and you're a daughter returned. Hey, he loves it when we clean some stuff up in our life because he hates broken stuff in our life because he hates seeing us hurt because any loving father or parent hates seeing their child hurt. But you got to understand He doesn't withhold His love from you until that moment where you cross that finish line. No, because you're not a slave or a servant perfecting yourself and recruited. No, you are a son and daughter returned. Come on, He loves you every single step of the way. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope and pray that you hear this. He delights in our activity, but he fundamentally desires your friendship. He applauds when we bring everything we have to him, but all he fundamentally asks for is for us to come back home to him. This, my friends. Softens our heart and woos us back into this beautiful place where we trust in the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. This story ends this way. So he tells these stories, making it really clear because it protects an environment. Birth by grace, and it frees people from legalism. You're inherently worthy to God. Come on, the gospel is not about you chasing Him, but God chasing you, not your work done, but God's work did. And He lets you know not looking for mindless slaves and servants to be recruited, I'm looking for precious sons and daughters returned. And then he turns his attention to those who are trapped in legalism. Who are having their life and their joy sapped because of the guilt and resentment that comes from feeling we're never good enough for God. And he includes them in this narrative. He says, and finally, the father goes out to the older son, symbolizing that person who is wound up, bound up, and being ground up by religiosity. And the father, come on, pleads with him. The boy responds with erroneous thinking. I've been here my entire life. I've been slaving for you. Can you see that? And you haven't even given me a little goat to share with my friends. Now, here, your crazy son comes home and you kill the fat and calf, and all the father does is begs him, come on, and implores him. I just want you to come into the house as well or in other words what Jesus is banking on to not only protect the grace based environment we have but come on to free those who are trapped in this prison is to remind you you're of inherent worth to him the gospel is not about what you've done but what God did and he wants you too to return. Because this whole deal isn't about slaves and servants recruited. This whole deal is about sons and daughters returned. Hey, Lord Jesus, this morning I pray two simple things. In this space that we're in right now, where we have now a critical mass and we have a level of momentum and we have a track record and we have direction, and we have vision, and we're moving together, I pray that this would be a point in our journey that reminds us of what started this, and what will complete this, what brought us into this house, and what will carry us home, your grace, and your mercy, and your kindness, and your forgiveness, and your love. May we forever bank on that. And secondly, For those here in this room who came into this place carrying guilt, carrying shame, carrying fear, carrying profound and deep insecurity, birthed out of erroneous religious thinking. Or for some of us here in this room who have fallen into this trap again. I pray that you would remind us afresh and anew of our inherent worthiness to you, of the gospel that declares your work, not ours. And how you're not looking for me to be a servant or a slave, but a son and a daughter returned. Do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, and everybody said can you just like give your your neighbor a quick high five and say hey you're a son you're a daughter two things that were done number 1 tonight as is kind of the tradition uh, we're going to be just talking about the love of Jesus and how that transforms hearts of those who are not only in the house, but come on, not yet in the house. And I encourage you to come on back, but to not come alone. Bring your family, bring your friends. Come on, if you're a parent and you have a teenager and like he sits on his Xbox all day long and kind of has his underwear up around here and his jeans down around here, grab that young man, he needs Jesus, bring him along tonight. Tonight I'm going to be doing a new talk called The Dirtiest S-Word in Church. We're going to be talking about sin tonight. But when Jesus talks about sin, it never brings guilt, shame or condemnation, but a sense of freedom and hope for the future. And uh, we'll be talking about that tonight. Lastly, I charge you. O Victory Church, You're a part of something just so different in this city. And that difference is this. You bank everything on the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. Protect that. And may that be your story for many days to come. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.